0: Well, I encourage you to grab a Bible if you brought your own or use the one in the seat back in front of you. Open up a device. Uh, Go to Matthew chapter 5. It's the first book of the New Testament. We're studying the Sermon on the Mount. And over the last two weeks, we've just tried to lay a foundation for the remainder of our study of the Sermon on the Mount. We've looked at what Jesus says in the opening parts of the Sermon on the Mount. The first week we looked at the Beatitudes. And it's drawing us a picture of what the character looks like of these people who've decided to follow Jesus. People who make up the kingdom of God. This is the way that they live, how they love, how they um, just the character that's forming in their life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Last week, we looked at a statement that Jesus made about his identity as well as his mission. And he said these words, I haven't come to abolish the Old Testament law or the Torah, but instead I've come to fulfill it. I think what Jesus was saying is I am the fulfillment. Like if you want to know what it looks like to live in a relationship with God, to to live on this earth as heaven on earth, follow me. I'm the one who can show you what that looks like. And so now we're entering a section over the next six statements that Jesus makes. He's speaking of the Old Testament law. He's not setting himself up in an opposition against the law, but he's actually trying to correct some of the false teaching that was happening or the misguided teachings of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And so over the next uh, couple of weeks, as we look at these statements, the first thing we'll notice is that they all start the same way. Look at Matthew 5, verse 21. It's here on the screen for you. It says this, this is Jesus talking. And he says this, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, dot, 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 but I tell you, dot, dot, dot. What Jesus is doing in these statements is he's once again being descriptive of what it looks like to live this life to the fullest that he came to bring us to show us what it looks like to have heaven here on earth to live a a flourishing life and these six radical statements that Jesus makes are really unpacking for us what it looks like for him to be living in and through our lives and so we're going to look at the first one today in Matthew 5 in verse 21 this is what Jesus has to say and again he's not contradicting the law but he's unpacking it Uh, First, a little further. So, look what he says in Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in dangers of the fire. Of hell, Jesus begins by quoting Exodus twenty, verse thirteen, and Deuteronomy five, seventeen, where the law forbids murder. The Old Testament had gone as far as to define what murder actually is: the striking of another human being that causes fatality. And you could strike somebody with an object like that's made of metal or stone or even wood, even using your fist. The Old Testament said that if you shove someone intentionally and knock them down and they die, you've murdered them. Or if you throw something at someone to cause them to die, well, that's murder. God has always valued human life. He punished Cain, who killed his brother Abel in the first short ticks of human history. And God has never looked lightly on anyone who devalues or destroys humanity, short of just warfare. Jesus, though, gets at the heart of the matter by saying the real issue underneath murder, it's not the act itself, as wrong and as destroying as that might be, as consequential as murder might be. Jesus says it's the inner disposition of a person's heart and their thoughts and actions toward another person that's just as concerning. Jesus says being angry or insulting another person that's made in God's image, not just the physical act of murder, Is worthy of judgment. What does Jesus mean when he talks about anger? Well, the American Psychological Association defines anger by this they say it's an emotion that's characterized by antagonism towards someone or something that you feel has done you wrong. It increases our blood pressure, they say. It causes other physical changes that keep us from thinking straight. Anger can be positive. It gives us a way to express our negative emotions. It can motivate us to find solutions to problems. But excessive anger causes problems itself. Jesus equates murder and anger because they both come from a heart that doesn't reflect God's character or value others. We need to acknowledge that Jesus is not talking about anger in general because the Old Testament describes God as being angry at the people of Israel or also the the pagan nations who were constantly persecuting the people of God. Jesus was described as angry when he went into the temple and knocked over the tables of those people selling things. Both God and Jesus have righteous anger. Because their anger is is directed toward the distortions and destructions of sin. But Jesus is is condemning a different type of anger. And this anger is one that's directed at people. It's also misinformed often by me-centered thinking or distortions that are caused by sin. And it leads to destruction of people by our thoughts, by our attitudes, or even our actions that's why James in chapters 1 verse 20 says that this kind of anger does not lead to the righteous life that God desires. So Jesus condemns anger. He also condemns name calling. He gives examples of how a, a wrong heart can lead toward tearing down people or making them feel less or small. In fact, he gives some examples of some words that were common in his day, raka, which is Aramaic, but it means empty headed. Or or fool, which kind of can categorize somebody as a moron or being stupid or lacking good judgment. Notice how the devaluing of people and the destructive words that come from anger attempt to hurt or tear down or make people feel small or worthless. R.T. France in his commentary says this, these are not just childish ways or words, but they actually represent a, a state of heart contempt for others that God takes very seriously. I think that's why one church decided to put this on their outdoor sign. Some people should use glue stick instead of chapstick. Maybe you know somebody you might recommend that too. Some have interpreted Jesus's words as saying, well, murder is really bad and you shouldn't be angry and watch what you say to people kind of as this progressive or that they're on different levels, but that's not what Jesus is saying. He's equating the three, that murder and anger and name calling all represent the kind of heart that doesn't reflect who God is and his character and his nature. God is serious about something deeper than just the physical act of murder. God sees and cares about the heart, the inner person. Every time heart comes up in our English language, it's usually translated from the Greek or Hebrew in the Bible. And in in those terms, it's more about the inner part of our life, not emotions. The control center of our heart is who Jesus is addressing. To those who want to fulfill righteousness like Jesus, or for those of us who want our, our righteousness to be surpassing of that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, like Jesus said last week, we need to face the issues of the inner person. I mean, not committing murder, the physical act, that's good and right, of course. But it's not the true litmus test of alignment with God's nature or his character or his coming kingdom. Examining one's attitudes and speech is just as important as refraining from homicidal violence. So Jesus is straightforward. He's indicating that those who live like that are not part of the kingdom. They aren't reflecting God's heart murder, anger, name calling. Well, they don't represent a flourishing life that those of us who are following Jesus are called to live. There's this change that happens when we accept Jesus as our savior and Lord. And, and Paul describes this change of behavior, this change of lifestyle, this change of character throughout his Letters to people in the New Testament. One of those is Ephesians chapter four. Why don't you turn there with me? Flip over to Ephesians four. Listen to some of the words that should describe us when we live this different way of following Jesus. In verse 15 through 20, Paul just talks about when we come to Christ, we should be different. We should put off our old self and we should put on this new self that follows Jesus and looks a lot like God. And then he describes it. Look at verse 25. He says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we're all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with others in need. In verse 29, he says this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other, just as God has forgiven you in Christ. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In that passage, there are so many practical action steps and motivation that should help us live out this life that's being described by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And it leads me to think about How does that look in our everyday life? Husbands, how do you respond when your wife corrects your driving? (laughs) Parents, how do you respond when your children, whether they're two or 20, deliberately disobey and disrespect you? What thoughts come to your mind when you think about your boss or your teacher at school? Could those who know you describe you as kind, compassionate, loving, Your spouse, your children, your boss, your teacher, your neighbor, your coworker, your friends. Do your words build up or do your words tear down? Instead of not just ending someone's life by murder, Jesus says we need to guard our hearts and let his reign in our lives dictate how we feel about others and what we say to them and about them. That includes what we say electronically, by text or social media, about subjects or about people or situations. We often can let our anger get the best of us and it just starts spewing out of our mouth or at the end of our fingertips. Sometimes we disguise that anger and we call it righteous anger, but it really is this me-centered self-absorption that's spewing out from us. It includes how we treat people who disappoint us, or who have hurt us. It it includes how we refer and label others who are different from us, who think differently from us, who act differently from us, or who just plain get on our nerves. All those things are included in, in how Jesus wants us to live. And he stresses how serious he is about our attitudes, words, and actions toward others by stating there are severe consequences. He said, when you live like this, You're not part of the kingdom and you are in danger of the fire of hell is what Jesus says. James picks up that same theme in James chapter three when he talks about how our words are like a small spark that can set a whole forest on fire. And he says that spark comes from the pit of hell. Those are strong words to remind us, to caution us, to consider the state of our heart, our actions and our words. It's about valuing and treating people the way God values them and how he treats them. But it's also about reconciliation. Remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Instead of just redefining murder, what Jesus is doing is he's exhorting us to be people of reconciliation. He continues his teaching in Matthew chapter five by giving some practical, but yet a very drastic action steps to take based on these radical teachings that he's giving. Look back at Matthew chapter five, verse 23. Look at the words of what Jesus says. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them then come and offer your gift. The first like drastic action step we should take is that we should prioritize reconciliation over worship. Jesus in his teaching places a higher importance on reconciliation than any religious practice. He says, if our hearts aren't right with our brother or sister, we shouldn't be worshiping. It would have been unusual for a person to bring their sacrifice to the altar and leave it there and go do something before offering it yet. And yet Jesus offers radical words. They stress how serious he is about how we live with pure hearts. I've waited till this moment to kind of reveal who these people are that Jesus wants us to not be angry with or say bad words about or to, or to live in reconciliation with. Jesus describes them as brothers and sisters, And every Bible commentator would say that these are not our kinfolk, but they're actually our brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God. You see, the unity of the body of Christ is the first and foremost priority to apply Jesus' teachings to. If we're angry with, or we have bad feelings toward, if we've said bad things about or to someone who's a Christ follower, we should repent. We should ask for forgiveness. Notice Jesus says who's at fault in these actions. He says, remember that somebody has something against you, which means that it's you and me who have done something to hurt someone. It's that you and me have said something to them. We've labeled them. We've attempted to to make them feel small or look worthless. We've caused them pain by our attitudes and actions. And so Jesus says, first go and be reconciled to them and then come and worship. Where there's unresolved hurt between brothers and sisters in Christ, God's not interested in our church attendance, our Bible reading, or even the consistency of our prayer life. Reconciliation is more important than these, Jesus says. Later in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives us some further teachings about how to live in reconciliation, how to seek reconciliation. And he describes how to respond when someone comes to you and says you've hurt them or how to approach someone who has hurt you. Look at his words in Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. He says this, If your brother or sister sins, most manuscripts believe that it includes against you. So if your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over but if they do not listen to you take one or two witnesses along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses if they listen then if they don't listen then then tell it to the church and if they refuse to listen even to the church treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector i don't think it's ironic or even just uh uh, just unusual, that what happens next in Matthew's gospel is he records a moment in Jesus' life where he tells a story. These stories are labeled parables, and they give us a picture of what it looks like when heaven comes to earth. And this specific picture of the kingdom of God, Jesus describes the scenario of a king who wanted to settle accounts with all of his servants, people who owed him money. And so he called them in one by one they owed and asking them for a repayment and if they couldn't repay they were to be thrown in jail all their possessions taken until they could repay the debt one such servant makes his appearance before the king and he owes the king a lot of money it says like 10,000 bags of gold which would be equivalent to about 20 years worth of wages and when the king demands payment the servant like has nothing to offer and he begs the king for mercy by falling at his feet and for whatever reason, the king looks at this servant and extends him mercy. And he takes away the entire debt and sets him free. And the man is just like overwhelmed and he leaves the presence of the king. And on his way, he runs into a fellow servant who, the, who Jesus says just owes him a few dollars. It would be equivalent to like one day's worth of wages. And the servant who was forgiven so much demands payment from his fellow servant. And the fellow servant has nothing to give him. And so he takes that servant who owes him money and has him thrown into jail because he can't repay. Well, the word gets around the other servants. I'm sure that's not a stretch of imagination, but like the other servants go to the king and say, do you know what just happened? And when they explain that, the servant brings that, or the king brings that first servant back. He challenges him, why did you treat your fellow servant that way? And there's really not a good answer. And so that servant is put in jail. But Jesus just kind of speaks to the heart of why he tells this story. In Matthew 18, verse 19, or no, it's verse uh, 35. He says this, This is how the heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. See, reconciliation is important to God because God has reconciled us to himself. He expects reconciliation to be something that we seek out with others, first with our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also to anybody that we've hurt with our attitudes, our words and our actions. And Jesus extends this same kind of reconciliation to anyone, anyone described as our adversary. Look back at Matthew five and hear his words again. Verse 25. He says this, settle matters quickly with your adversary, someone who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, Jesus says, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Who's our adversary? Well, I think it's anybody that we have a relationship with that is not at peace. Last weekend, we celebrated uh, what's happening at our West Campus. And we shared with you that Matt Volkman, who served as an elder for 15 years here at Crossroads, is now our West Campus lead. He's providing leadership for our staff and our ministry on the West Campus. And we celebrated that. And we've also asked many of you who live on the West Side or close to the West Campus to consider worshiping there and serving there. But there's something we didn't tell you. We didn't tell you that Matt and I had a little friendly wager behind the scenes and it was because Matt grew up on the West side. He attended Wright's high school and I just moved here. We're living in Newburgh. My children are attending Castle high school and a week before last weekend, Castle and Wright's had a football game. And so Matt and I had a friendly wager that who's ever lost had to wear the other team's paraphernalia, their swag up here on stage. If you were here last weekend, you may have noticed that uh, Matt did not have any Castle High School gear on because Castle beat rights in that game. And so I had to make a choice. Was I going to forgive Matt or not? And kind of bringing it up this weekend may show that I'm still a little bitter that he didn't follow through on what he was supposed to do, right? I mean, I've been here three months and I'm, I'm, I've become an avid fan of the Castle Knights. But, so he owes me. But I'm choosing, based on what Jesus said, to forgive him, right? And here's my point in all that, right? If somebody from the west side and somebody from Newburgh can get along, can't we all get along, right? I mean, we'll see in a couple weeks when we all meet at our town fellowship meal, the fall festival, right? Jesus says this, settle matters quickly. Seek reconciliation now. It was Paul back in Ephesians 4. He said something similar. He says this. He says, don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. I think those two are related. When we let anger fester in our hearts and in our lives and in our relationships, we give the devil a foothold. That anger turns into a a huge chokehold in our life because Satan uses it to get the best of us. So the second radical step that Jesus asks us to take is to seek reconciliation quickly. Those who live as part of the kingdom of heaven, who follow Jesus and his ways, those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, those who want life to the fullest, this flourishing life, we keep short accounts by seeking reconciliation with anyone, with everyone, Scott McKnight in his commentary on uh, the book of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount says this, nothing expresses kingdom realities more than reconciled relations. And we must be intentional about it, he says, for it to become a pervasive lifestyle. Christ's followers keep a rule on their hearts, their attitudes, their words, and their actions by surrendering to the reign of God's kingdom in their life. They value people like God values people. They love people like Jesus loves people. They don't murder. They also aren't angry. They don't allow anger to fester. They don't, allow, they don't destroy people or relationships with their attitudes or their actions. They forgive. They experience the lightness of Jesus' yoke that he offers to us by laying down the axe and by burying the hatchet they, as far as it depends on them, Romans 12, 18 says, that they live at peace with all people. And when they sense tension or hurt between brothers and sisters in Christ, when they realize they've wronged someone by their attitudes or their words or their actions, they take the first step toward reconciliation. They understand that God would rather them first seek unity so that they can worship in harmony. And so you and I, who call ourselves Christ followers, we have a responsibility to not devalue or destroy people by our attitudes, our words, or our actions. If we do, we deserve to be judged harshly, Jesus says. So let us be motivated to accept responsibility for any way that we have wronged anyone and to seek reconciliation to that someone that we've wronged in some way. So let me ask us this morning, have we? I'm pretty confident that as I've been teaching about forgiveness and reconciliation, there's probably somebody that has come to your mind that who has hurt you. Or maybe it's somebody that you have hurt. It's somebody you've been angry with. Maybe somebody you've had bad thoughts about. You've most likely not murdered them physically, but your thoughts and the words about them or even to them are filled with all kinds of evil. It's usually because of what they've done to us or some self-centered perception of why we deserve to treat them that way. Jesus says that we should live differently, that we should not be angry with them. We should not use our words or our actions to devalue them or destroy them. And our motivation should be the fact that while we've hurt God by our sinful ways, he's chosen to forgive us. He's not allowed his anger to get the best of him. So while his righteous anger is justified on his part, he chooses to justify us, to forgive us, to cancel our debts that we deserve, just like the king did to that servant in Jesus' parable. So we can't be like the servant who was forgiven much, but did not seek forgiveness or reconciliation toward those. We have to seek reconciliation and forgiveness to those who've hurt us and to those we have hurt. Reconciliation is important to God. So important that he was willing to give up the only son he had so that you and I could have reconciliation to him. Three of the four gospels record that when Jesus died on the cross and took his last breath, That a curtain that hung in the temple separating the most holy place from all the other worship space in the temple. It was torn from top to bottom. And it signified that there is no longer a barrier between God and his people. That we now have reconciliation with God because of what Christ did for us on the cross. Before that, only one person could enter God's presence. It was the high priest who was allowed to do that one time a year. But God didn't want anything to separate us from him. So he removed the barrier between us. And therefore, through Christ's sacrifice, we can enter the presence of God. We can stay in God's presence and have confidence. Listen to what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we now have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus... By a new and living way open for us through the curtain, which is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance of that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. God is interested in reconciliation first with us and him, but also with us and others. At the end of every row, there's a stack of red ribbons. I would encourage you and ask you, if you're seated on the end of either side of the row, would you pick up that stack of ribbons, take one and pass it toward the center? We want every person this weekend to leave here with a red ribbon and I want you to know that the ribbon represents this veil that was torn in the temple that grants us access into God's presence. And I hope never any of us will ever forget that God has lavished his love upon us. He's forgiven us through Christ that we have reconciliation with God. But I also want this ribbon to represent the reconciliation God wants us to have with others those who have hurt us and those we have hurt i want us to be motivated to bandage the wounds that we have caused in the life of others and to restore peace with those that we have hurt by seeking reconciliation you can place this ribbon as a bookmark in your bible or some other place that you might see it as often i want it to serve as a reminder that as we have received mercy freely we should offer it to others freely we've purposely rearranged the worship service this morning so that we could practically live out Jesus teaching from the Sermon on the Mount before any of us would just waltz through another worship service and take communion or to give our offerings without first seeking reconciliation with anyone we feel we might have hurt or to continue harboring uh, anger feelings toward those who've maybe hurt us with their words or their actions. I want us to have an opportunity, a chance for us to act upon what Christ has said. It would be better for us today to forgo our normal worship practices of our faith and seek reconciliation first. That would worship God the most by living out his heart, the way he values people, an expression of his covenant relationship with us that we should also have with others. So before we celebrate communion today, instead of partaking, Maybe you should sit quietly and ask God for the courage to take the first step towards someone you know that you've hurt or offended. Your actions or attitudes or words have caused them hurt. Or maybe somebody who has wronged you. Maybe you need to pull out your phone. You have my permission. Start a text that says something that, like this. I was wrong when I dot dot dot. Or maybe you need to say, it really hurt me when you dot, dot, dot. Maybe you just need to get up and just slip out quietly and go seek reconciliation with that person in person. Or maybe you're here today and you're carrying a whole big bag of guilt because of how you have offended God in your life. That you know what your sins are and you feel like you have to earn God's love Maybe what you need today is just the reconciliation that God offers you freely through what Jesus came. He came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And his fulfillment is by taking the place of you on the cross, paying your debt of sin. And maybe today, right here, right now, you need to say yes to Jesus' invitation to follow him as your Savior, as your Lord. That's truly the first step of becoming part of the kingdom of God in a section of his letter to the Corinthians, Paul has some really challenging words to say to them because their worship services were a mess. They were chaotic is how Paul would describe it. And the reason they were such a mess is because of the re- relational dysfunction. They were gathering to celebrate worship. They were gathering for the Lord's Supper. But instead of doing that together, they were, some were eating more than others. Some were not getting anything. There was just all kinds of selfishness and discord. And Paul says, you can't celebrate the Lord's Supper that way. If your relationship with God is not right, or it's not relationships with each other are not right, you need to do something about them first. So listen what he says to the Corinthians, because I think it really speaks to us today. First Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says these words. I received from the Lord what I've passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given things, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he, after supper, took a cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this. Whenever you drink it, remember me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, Paul says... Whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, if you do it in an unworthy manner, you'll be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So as our servers come and they begin to pass out the bread and juice, before you partake, I would encourage you to examine yourself as well as your relationships. I want you to take any necessary steps that you might need to, to make sure your love for God as well as your love for others is flourishing. That's truly what it looks like to be part of the kingdom of God, that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we love others. We love others the way Jesus loves them. And to act in accordance of his will and nature is truly what it means to follow him. So let's ask for his help right now. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. It shows us a picture of what your heart is like. and It also draws a picture of what our hearts should look like. And God, I have no one to talk about other than myself. And that is that my heart sometimes is, is so far away. God, there are thoughts that come into my mind and, and state of my heart. And there's words that make it past my lips that don't honor you. They don't respect people who are made in your image, God. And i ask for your forgiveness. And God, I need your help. Maybe I'm not alone, God. Maybe all of us need help from your Holy Spirit to live out what Jesus is saying, that more than our acts of worship is our humility and our desire for reconciliation. That our heart's being right with you, but also our heart's being right with our spouse or our children or our neighbor, our coworker, our boss, a teacher, a friend. God, that that's just as important to you, that that's the equal side of the commandment. So God, I pray that we wouldn't just sit and listen today, but that we'd be motivated to seek reconciliation, that we'd be motivated to live and love the way you did, the example that Jesus has shown us. God, as we do, I pray that we'll find the freedom that comes in following Jesus, the joy it is to live with a heart that's flourishing, flourishing in a relationship with you and with others. And God, the the world would notice that we're living differently because of who you are in our life. And it points people to you. They'll be drawn to you. God, would you make that happen right here in our midst today? For we pray that through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.